Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor. We're so glad to have you with us today for another Where Are They Now feature episode. I've loved welcoming back some of our most popular 40 Minute Mentors over the past few weeks, and today's guest is no exception. Tessa Clark is the co-founder and CEO of Olio, the number one free sharing app connecting neighbours with each other and local businesses, so surplus food can be shared, not thrown away. Every day, households around the UK waste a huge amount of food. And so it's so great to see Tessa and the team at Olio helping to put an end to this. Olio started out as a hyper-local experiment in North London, but now has over 5 million users and they've shared over 43 million portions of food. Today, Tessa and I discuss her biggest learnings from scaling Olio over the last seven years and raising over $50 million in funding. We also discuss how her and the Olio team have ensured that their culture and processes evolve and get stronger as the business scales. Plus, we discuss a topic very close to her and my heart, the lack of VC funding given to female founders and founders from underrepresented communities. Tessa shares so much great mentorship in this episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with the incredible Tessa Clark. Hi, Tessa. Welcome back to the 40 Minute Mentor. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Great to be back. Great stuff. Well, it's been a couple of years since you last uh, came on to the podcast. So when we first spoke, you shared the story of Olio and all the amazing things you've been up to. But for anyone that hasn't heard of the business before, can you tell us a bit about the mission and why you started the business? Yeah, sure thing. So Olio exists to tackle the enormous problem of waste in our homes and local communities. And how we do that is via an app that connects people with their neighbours so that you can give away rather than throw away your spare food and other household items. And you can also lend and borrow everyday things too. So the original light bulb moment, I guess, if you like, for Olio took place just over seven years ago now. I was living and working in Switzerland and moving back to the UK. And on moving day, the removal men told me I had to throw away all of our uneaten food. Now, my backstory is that I'm a farmer's daughter. So I had a childhood spent working incredibly hard on my family farm. And as a result of that, I think that food, you know, throwing away perfectly good food is is criminal. So when the removal men tried to get me to do this, clearly I was not prepared to do it. So instead I stopped packing and bundled up my newborn baby and toddler and set out into the streets with this food, hoping to find someone to give it to. And unfortunately I failed miserably, but wasn't to be defeated. So I went back to my apartment and when the packing men weren't looking, I smuggled the non-perishable food into the bottom of my packing boxes. And that was when I just thought, this is absolutely crazy, the lengths I'm going to to avoid throwing this food away. This has got a bit extreme now. I knew there's an app for everything because I'd been in the digital space for 10 years prior. And I couldn't believe it wasn't a simple app to connect me with my neighbors so I could give this food away rather than having to throw it away. So you created one. I love it. I know my parents would be listening to this. Hopefully they're they're not great at podcasts, but they would be nodding along. I remember in our household, we weren't allowed to leave the table unless everything was eaten. And that's definitely filtered through to, to my parenting style too. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know the business has gone from strength to strength in the last seven years. You've raised over $50 million in funding. So when you uh, sort of reflect back on on how the business has evolved, even since the last time we spoke, what have been the, the big biggest learnings for you so far? And have there been any particular challenges, particularly in the last couple of years that you've had to contend with? Yes. So just to give everyone some sort of idea of scale and sort of where Oyo is at. So actually, we passed an exciting milestone last week. We've had our six millionth person join Olio, which is 
fantastic. And roughly half of our communities in the UK, half is outside of the UK with our most active markets being in Singapore and also in Latin America. So Mexico, Argentina, Chile, Colombia. So certainly those sort of first steps of international expansion are new since we last spoke. But perhaps the biggest inflection point has been the fundraising round that we did at the end of last summer, which was our Series B. And up until that point in time, we had been incredibly lean and resourceful as an organization. And we just really hadn't raised that much capital. And raising our Series B has been transformative for us and marked a really, really significant inflection point because we have gone from being this very sort of small, scrappy startup comprised of, of generalists to now we're needing to almost refound the company as a scale-up with all these specialisms that are hugely exciting to have, but that we've never had before. So a head of performance marketing and head of CRM and head of BI and head of product design. So yeah, and, and I think that whilst we knew we were going to go through this inflection point and we knew it wouldn't be easy, it's been even more profound than Sasha and I had anticipated. And also it takes a lot longer than you think as well. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's kind of unbelievably exciting, but adds extra levels of stress when you're bringing in sorts of specialists. And obviously the talent space is hugely demanding and competitive right now. But I think as we spoke last time, you know, there's something particularly special about the culture you've created and the mission that you have, which I think will always hopefully attract some of the best of the best. You referenced there that the team's grown a lot and the culture will have to have evolved over time. So can you tell us a bit about how that has happened at Odeo and how have you managed to ensure that the company has, you know, stays true to those original roots and what made that culture special and how you've continued to attract the right types of talent? So one of my biggest concerns, and I think also the concern, well, not I think I know, <laughs> the biggest concerns uh, of the team ahead of our Series B was that going through this rapid period of scaling would result in a dilution of our culture because we do have a really, really magical culture at Olio. And obviously, I'm a co-founder and I'm biased and you might think that I would say that, but we have the data to back it up. So we've always run biannual employee satisfaction surveys and across every metric, our average score was anywhere between sort of eight and a half and nine and a half. And we heard time and time again from the team that there was something just incredibly special about the Olio culture. So going into this post-Series B period of rapid growth, we were really, really apprehensive about whether we could or could not scale the culture. And I'm, you know, we're sort of by no means there and out of the woods yet. But thus far, it seems like actually we've done a really, really good job of that. And I think there's a couple of reasons for it. So first, it's been a top priority, sort of as the CEO of the company, I see that as one of my sort of top three objectives. And so the first sort of senior hire we made after raising our Series B ahead of a CTO and a CPO and a chief brand officer and all those other wonderful people, the very first recruit we made was a people and culture director. And so that was someone to really help me and support me on ensuring that we, we kept the Olio Magic alive. And then other things that really guided us through this period have been our mission. So we have always recruited for not just mission alignment, but a step higher than that, mission obsession. And even when we've needed to grow very quickly, we have not compromised 
on that really, really high bar. And I think that has been critical to maintaining the, uh, the quality of the culture. The second thing that we have done is that we recruit very, very rigorously and very explicitly against our company values. So we only have four values. They're really easy for everyone to remember. They are inclusive, resourceful, caring, and ambitious. And they really feature incredibly prominently and explicitly through the recruitment process. And certainly we've had a ton of feedback from the folks that we've just recruited saying that they've never been through a recruitment process like that, where the values are so front and central. So I think mission obsession, values alignment, bringing in Thaisa, our people and culture director. And then the other thing is, and, and sort of Thaisa and the team have done a great job here, is really focusing on the onboarding experience as well and making sure that we've got really, really robust onboarding process. And then we've also been spending quite a lot of time of just running these sort of lunch and learns, which are these little kind of bite-sized chunks of information and coaching, I guess, if you like, about how Olio thinks about things and approaches things. So we've got our biannual uh, employee satisfaction survey out as we speak. So I'll, I'll get the data back soon to see how well we have or haven't done on it. But it's definitely something that's been really, really top of mind for me. In terms of just quickly on the obsession point, which I absolutely love that, how do you test for a mission obsession? But I'd love to just dive into that a bit. Well, first of all, everyone who joins us answers sort of that question about their personal connection to our mission. And when you have interviewed hundreds of people, you get really, really good at being able to detect who authentically lives, breathes, sleeps our mission and is truly obsessed by it. And who is just sort of saying what they think you want to hear? You know, so we we have had people, yeah, just do some incredibly sort of share some incredibly personal and moving things from their own personal lives as part of that interview process. And you can spot a mission obsessed person a mile away. It bubbles out of them. It bursts out of them. They they almost sort of can't contain it within them. And yeah, it's really easy to spot. Amazing. And looking personally, how is your own leadership style and your role as CEO evolved over the last year or two? And what advice would you have for any founders that are listening to this that might be kind of about to embark on a similar growth story or going through a similar transition as their company scales? So we're definitely sort of knee deep in the transition. Sasha and I, my co-founder, used to be all over everything. There was nothing that happened in the company that didn't have our fingerprints on it. And we obviously know that that is completely unsustainable. And we've brought in this amazing senior leadership team, sort of eight of them who all joined at the same time. And we've been going through this period of transition of sort of extracting myself and Sasha from the day to day and empowering them to do what they do best. And it's the transition period that's the most tricky, complicated bit, right? Because you can't just eject right away without any guardrails being in place. So you go through this very, very intense period where actually we're still doing kind of the business as usual, plus we're sort of inducting the new folks and creating the new systems and processes for a new, more scaled organization. So transition period is super intense, but both Sasha and I are very, very clear that where we need to get to is Sasha and I have to move into these roles, which is kind of much more a stage manager type role and and the sort of the stars of the play are our new senior leadership team with all of their teams supporting them. So we really need to spend our time just doing a lot more coaching, kind of bringing people together, make sure there's alignment around the strategy, 
focus on the culture, etc. Great. The conductor of the orchestra. Oh, yeah, I love that. Yes, exactly. That, that's the other analogy that's often used. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, awesome. And I guess besides leading earlier, which I know is a 24-7 job, undeniably, I also know that you're also a very active mentor, you're a venture partner. And I think, like me, you're particularly passionate about DE&I in the tech ecosystem. So I actually read the Sifted article that you wrote where you talked about female founders needing more money rather than mentorship, which I thought was um, particularly interesting. So could you just elaborate for anyone that hasn't read that piece, which I would strongly encourage people to do so, do you mind elaborating on that a bit for our listeners and just share any, any particular advice you might have for any female founders that are listening to this and looking for investment? Yeah, so this is an area I feel incredibly passionately about. And wherever I, I am saying female, kind of please insert the word diverse, right? Because it's definitely not just sort of female founders that suffer from this, but but just focusing on sort of what that piece was about, which was the experience of female founders. So I think it's really important for female founders to understand the reality of the environment in which they are operating when it comes to fundraising. And that starts off with knowing the stats. So in the UK slash Europe, roughly 1% of all venture capital investment goes to female founded businesses. 89% goes to male founded businesses and 10% goes to mixed teams. And that sort of 1% number has remained stubbornly low at anywhere between kind of 1% or maybe on a crazy year, it's gone up to as high as 2%. But really, it has been extremely low. Now, it can be frustrating and dispiriting to understand that that is the reality. But I think it is important to be aware of that because then you can sort of prepare to play that game, fight that fight. And I think the most important thing to do is certainly I point everyone to watch an amazing video by a lady called Dana Kanzi, which talks about why female founders uh, get so little investment. And a big part of that is because when they are pitching, her research showed that female founders are asked prevention questions, which is all about the downside, the negative stuff. You know, what happens if Google comes in and just decides to destroy you. Whereas male founders are asked what's referred to as promotion questions, which is all about the upside. How fast can we go? How big can we make this? And the answer to that sort of conundrum, like how do you deal with this barrage of prevention questions, which I can certainly attest to as being sort of my reality of fundraising, is that you answer those prevention questions by flipping them on their head and giving a promotion response. I think other things that you need to be aware of are the sort of conscious and unconscious biases against women. So there is an assumption that perhaps we're not as commercial. And so if you are aware of those biases, then you can kind of slightly over-index, make sure that you bring the financials and the commercials up front, make sure that they're not sort of hidden, they're really explicit. I also think that as female founders, and again, diverse founders of all types, we are consistently underestimated. And so if you do have any, what I call kind of seals of approval from organizations with big brands or good reputations, you know, make sure that you lead with that and establish your credentials up front so that investors are really listening to you properly and taking what you say seriously. So yeah, I mean, I could talk sort of for hours about this topic, but the reason why I'm so passionate about it is because in my experience, when I look at the largest problems facing humanity today, they are almost sort of without exception being disproportionately tackled by women, by people of color, 
by people from different, less privileged socioeconomic backgrounds. And these diverse founders are tackling the largest problems facing humanity today, and yet they are getting a pittance in terms of the proportion of venture capital investment. And that infuriates me because by shortchanging these diverse founders, we are shortchanging ultimately, all of us were shortchanging humanity. And that is something that we've just got to fix. And my sort of somewhat simplistic, but I believe very powerful proposal would be that if we were to see truly representative investment committees, then and truly sort of diverse representation amongst the gatekeepers of power and capital, then we would solve this problem pretty much overnight. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's it's so great that you're sharing this with us today and in the, the wider media, because I think people need to take note of this. It's great to see people like Jack Warner and Ada Ventures and, and other funds sort of trying and Diversity VC trying to do something about this. But it's it's still so obvious to everyone that the VC industry is not as representative of society as it should be. So hopefully the more we can uh, sort of talk about this topic, the more change can happen. Thank you so much, Tessa. You also have a role with MSM Fund. So I know there'll be potential founders here uh, keen to impress you uh, uh, when pitching and things like that. So what just attributes and characteristics do you look for when assessing founders and their businesses? Because that's a regular question we get asked to talk about on the podcast. Yeah, so a couple of things I look for. So the first thing is to understand their why. Sort of why are you uniquely passionate about solving this problem? And having a really, really strong and robust and authentic why is critical because that is what will give that founder the resilience, the resourcefulness, the creativity, the lateral thinking that is required to just be persistent in solving this barrage of problems that are going to come your way as a founder. So understanding their why is super critical. I am stunned at how many founders are really, really bad at describing the problem that they are solving and then describing their solution in a way that sort of their granny would understand. And they tend to, when they want to pitch you, just immediately go into this long sort of monologue describing their product from a very sort of technical perspective, run end user perspective. And I really think it's super important, really punchy. What's the problem you're solving? And then from an end user perspective, what does that solution look and feel like? The other thing in terms of characteristics, I think it's really important to have an almost sort of 50-50 blend of humility. So being kind of really very humble, but then also ambition. And I think you need both of those qualities in equal measure. The, the, the sort of humility is really important because you've just got to be really, really fast at experimenting and learning. And the ambition is required because you need you do need to sort of think big. And then sort of link, link to the above, just that insatiable level of curiosity, I think, marks out the very best founders and to sort of take learnings from wherever it comes from. Great advice. Thank you so much, Tessa. We're sadly at the end, but before we go, I'm sure everyone listening would love to hear a bit more about what your plans are for for Olio and yourself in the rest of 2022 and beyond. So what have you got to look forward to? Olio and myself, they're sort of one and the same thing, uh, if I'm being (laughs) very honest. So in, in 2022, there's several things that we're looking forward to. So we're doing some really exciting work around our international expansion. That's being led by our fantastic new 
director of international expansion, lady called um, Tess as well, confusingly. So that's just really amazing kind of seeing our product being sort of translated into international markets. We're also really very focused on closing more clients for our Food Waste Heroes program. So that's our B2B proposition whereby we match train volunteers from our local community with businesses such as supermarkets, quick service restaurants, and quick commerce companies, contract caterers, et cetera, to enable those businesses to have zero food waste. And we have got a fantastic sort of pipeline that we are plowing through and busy closing those contracts. And then the third area, which is really exciting, is we're going through a rebrand process. So this is very much part of Olio crossing the chasm from that early adopter into the early mainstream. And moving away from our current positioning, which I think in most people's minds, we're probably pegged as a food waste app, which is super exciting for an early adopter, but probably a bit off-putting for the mainstream, into a new positioning, which is much more about sort of local sustainable living and connecting people with their neighbors to give and get both food and non-food items, but also to lend and borrow everyday items as well. So watch this space for the rebranding. Fantastic. Well, all the very best with those exciting initiatives and the international expansion. And uh, yeah, we're really grateful that you took time out of your very busy schedule to fill us in of what you've been up to. It's been an amazing couple of years and uh, we're really excited to see where the rest of 2022 and beyond goes for, for you and Olio. So thanks so much, Tessa. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been so great to hear about the incredible journey Tessa and the Olio team have been on, especially since they last came on the podcast. She shared some really practical learnings, particularly their approach to retaining the amazing culture they built over the years and hiring top talent that are obsessed with the problem that they're trying to solve. It's always inspiring to see purpose-driven founders like Tessa doing something really good for the world, especially when it comes to tackling food poverty and the climate crisis. So if you haven't checked out Olio before, please make sure you do via the link in the show notes. If you've been enjoying our Where Are They Now feature series, please make sure you hit subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. We really appreciate it. Before we finish today, I also wanted to share a little bit more about a new service offering at JBM. JBM SOS is a fast and flexible talent solution where founders and VCs tap into an exclusive pool of scale-up operators to plug urgent leadership gaps on an interim or fractional basis, all while de-risking senior hiring. The team have placed over 50 leaders into some of the fastest growing firms over the last 12 months, and the service is in demand more than ever before. So if you're a founder or VC that needs top talent quickly, a scale-up operator interested in a high-impact role, or a talent professional that would be interested in joining the SOS team, please reach out today at info at jbmc.co.uk. We would love to hear from you. That's a wrap for today, but I'm already looking forward to welcoming our final Where Are They Now guest next week. See you then.